The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Gunfight at the OK Career Edition. It's Wednesday, July 31st, 2019. On today's show, Quentin Tarantino is now improbably both wise elder and enfant terrible, and his new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is his shaggy love letter to the movie and TV biz that both shaped him as a person and has made his career. And then The Great Hack is the new Netflix documentary about Cambridge Analytica and the role that data mining played in the sinister triumphs of both Brexit and uh, Donald Trump. And finally, what happens when Lyme disease goes from being a mere bacterial infection to a way of life? Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is, of course, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hello, Julia. Hello, hello. And as well, uh, Dana Stevens, who's the film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Okay, well, in lieu of inane banter, we're actually going to um, shed a sincere tear here. We actually have some um, some melancholy news. Uh, what's up, Dana? Well, it's it's melancholy in its way, and it's happy in its way, too. Our production assistant, truly beloved, really one of my favorite of all the wonderful production assistants we've ever had, Alex Barish, is leaving. Next week is going to be his last week at Slate. And uh, we're very happy for him in his new job and his new life that he's going to, but we will miss him terribly on the show. So that, and there's also the sad slash happy news that we are searching for a new production assistant. I mean, this fits a, a well-worn, you know, this is a pattern, a well-worn path here, which is that a production assistant comes in who's smarter than the three of us, <laughs> uh, stays for a while. Uh, like Mary all- Poppins. We all achieve. We all achieve full cathexis, like suckers. Live in denial. Think this person, like Mary Poppins, will be with us forever, and then they go on to some cherry job. Um, <laughs> He's even English, like Mary Poppins. He's just going to float off with an umbrella next week. <laughs> oh, but this is the circle of life, Steve. This is uh, this is the beauty and the glory. We get to see our star-studded alumni off um, ruling the world. So. Oh, it's been so nice working with Alex. Really, one of the greats. Um, and and the the other sad happy news for listeners is that we are now hiring a production assistant. And so, any dear listeners who would like to come and be a production assistant for our show and for the Waves should send a cover letter about why they'd be great and a resume to production assistant at slate dot com. Right. So it's clear you need to be like superbly qualified and intellectual and heartless, like kind of capable of, of you know, putting one right between the eyes of Bambi when the moment comes. <laughs> you have to be able to boss me and Steve around <laughs> and and recognize that Dana is the true boss of us all and just like accede, accede to that with grace and wisdom. When you think of the number of horrible humili- humiliations we've been saved by Alex Barish knowing something that we didn't know, it's just, it's staggering to contemplate. I know. Oh, yeah, the... that's another exciting news. Think of the train wreck the show will become. It's going to be just like high stakes to listen to. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that sort of completely chill, you know, low pulse British way of, you know, taking your knees out from underneath you is just <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm going to really miss it. No, I mean, the truth is we've had <laughs> astonishing, astonishing run here. I mean, if you really look at it, uh, and uh, Alex is, 
you know, is just just right there along with us. So it's just a, it really is a fucking murderer's row. Once they were called interns, now production assistants. So anyway, mazel. Yeah, we've been, we've been very lucky. So again, it's, we're looking for a New York-based production assistant for the Culture Gab Fest and the Waves. This is a paid position and you can apply at productionassistant at slate.com. Send along a cover letter about why do you, why you would be great and a resume. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the ninth movie from writer-director Quentin Tarantino. He, of course, of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. I mean, you name them. They're, as we know, seven others. Um, uh, this one is a period piece set in Hollywood in the late 1960s. And in its own askance way is a retelling of the Manson murders, this time mostly from the point of view of two neighbors to the victims. Rick Dalton is a movie cowboy sliding the downslope of a middling career. Cliff Booth is his friend, confidant, man Friday, and stunt double. I should say Dalton is played by... Leonardo DiCaprio booth by uh, Brad Pitt. The premise, as we know, going into the movie is we're going to relive the horrific night of the Manson murders, but the movie clocks in at two hours and 40 minutes, and it is so, so much more than its premise. It's a languorous and intricately detailed love letter to old Hollywood growing old in the last moments before it's eclipsed by Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. It's also a loving and knowing what might have been and to that end, the movie also stars Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. Okay, and in the following scene, we're going to hear uh, Rick Dalton, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, talking to the man in charge of hiring stunt people for his latest project. He's trying to convince him to hire his buddy Cliff, played by Brad Pitt. And uh, the man that he's talking to is played by the legendary Kurt Russell. Just, just look, just, just, just put him in the wardrobe, all right? What's it going to hurt? Then if you need him, you got him, all right? <laughs> then they got to have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant. And man, she's a... Bitch, I just don't. Right, please, look, I, look Rennie, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey, hey. And if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Th th throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just he's happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. Dana, it must be hard to get through one's life in this era as a film critic without developing somewhat, somewhat um, nuanced feelings or or highly developed feelings about um, Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker. What uh, I'm curious what yours are and how this uh, alters them in any way. Yeah, it's crazy how the conversation around this movie, even more than with most Tarantino movies, has become a referendum on Tarantino. I mean, it's almost annoying right now to get on my Twitter and hear the degree of vitriol, passion, love, you know, pettiness, like just all of the emotion being expended about this movie. So a part of me does want to say, guys, it's just a movie. But at the same time, this is a movie that you want to have conversations about. And I couldn't wait to have that conversation with you guys about it. In fact, I saw it a second time last night because, A, I wanted to see it on 35 millimeter. I think my first screening was digital. And this movie is so about old Hollywood and about formats mattering and things like that, that it seemed like 35 would be nice. But also just because, like you said, it's two hours and 40 minutes long. It's complex. There's a lot going on there. And uh, as you can see, if you read my review, I mean, in general, 
I liked this movie. There are parts of it I even, to my surprise, loved, especially surprising to me given that The Hateful Eight, the previous Tarantino project, was a movie that almost turned me off him forever. Like, I don't care if I ever see one of his movies again. In fact, if I weren't a film critic, I might have skipped this entirely because of my loathing for The Hateful Eight, particularly the end of it and the the, the sadism and misogyny of it. So uh, that's a big preamble <laughs> to say I would recommend this movie with big reservations. I'm think we'll probably talk about the ending in in our own ending in our our Slate Plus segment. Um, I'm not quite sure why Tarantino took this particular project on and what he's trying to do with history in taking the Manson story and making this kind of Manson-adjacent buddy comedy bromance thing that he's made. But that said, I vastly enjoyed almost every minute of this movie's running time, even if I walked out of it the first time going, wow. <laughs> yeah. um, it's There's so much craft. There's so much uh, care in, in the details. It's not just a show-offy kind of craft either, as I think he's sometimes been accused of, um, you know, a sort of a self-indulgent love of movies for movie's sake. I really feel like there's a lot of thinking about history and not only film history going on in this movie and that it may be one of his movies that opens itself up to the political world, you know, the sort of larger social context more than other Tarantino films have, although it can also be accused of not doing that enough or doing it in the wrong way. And I know this is all sounding very mysterious, but it's because Mm. I'm trying not to spoil anything. I mean, one thing I think we can all agree on is that Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are just kings in this movie. I mean, they're both so extraordinary in their performances and uh, and yeah, the, the bond they create yeah. between each other. And even though their characters are morally ambivalent, sometimes heroic, sometimes anti-heroic, they they both just um, just pop off the screen with that movie star charisma. I've been trying to reckon with the degree to which I am like a child of the age of Tarantino. You know, I was a teenager figuring out that she liked movies in the 90s and the great you know, indie Sundance Miramax explosion of whatever that was. And I remember seeing turn, seeing Pulp Fiction in high school and having it feel kind of like a revelation about how exciting film could be. And I think there's, I'm, I've been wondering if there's some susceptibility to Tarantino embedded in me age-wise that overrides the many reservations I've had about his movies since. Um, but I love this movie. I think this movie is a masterpiece I love it because I think it is the first movie I've seen of Tarantino's that rather than presenting all of his cinephilia as the one high true way to live, it both very lovingly sings the praise of movie making and shows the glory of it as he sees it and also very wistfully recognizes the limits of the power of film he gives filmmaking and movie magic superpowers like the superhero of this movie. Um, and the, and the thing that achieves the impossible is the craft of movie making is sort of the, the, you know, the stunt double figure played by Brad Pitt, the crazy flamethrower prop. Um, and, uh, I just, there's like a humility in it that, that I've never seen before in Tarantino's work. And I really, you know, there's scenes, there's quibbles, there's things I would debate, but like I loved, loved this movie. Mm-hmm. He concerns himself with both the production end and the reception end of content making in Hollywood in ways that are very tender, very thoughtful, um, and weirdly like somewhat introspective. I mean, there's a there's almost like a non Tarantino esque 
side to this movie that shades even a little bit in the direction of the Coen brothers. I know that there's a huge gulf there and I'm I'm not trying to be facile by saying that, but I mean, there's a, it, he both writes the love letter to the production end where you show up on the lot and a whole bunch of professionals need to coordinate with one another in order to get the shot and what it is an actor does to prepare. And there's both a sense of kind of chaos and mishigas and out of controlness because there are that many creative egos in one place, but there's also a sense of of just total craft and professionalism that goes into making these products. But there are then a ton of scenes in which you see people watching movies or more pointedly watching TV. And he's thoughtful about the role in which the ubiquity of television and the ubiquity, ubiquity of violence on television, which is totally a conscious theme of this movie, a stated theme of this movie at various points, how it worked its way into the minds and bloodstreams of young people of a certain generation, which if you think about it for Quentin Tarantino, the video store clerk, who sort of worships movies in a kitschy and slightly postmodern way as something that as things that don't really refer to real life, therefore you can go in the direction of ultraviolence um, without it raising a moral issue. For, for Quentin Tarantino to think seriously about what it was like to grow up with TV, um, to me is a remarkable act of maturation. I sort of loved the movie. I mean, for, for two hours and 20 minutes, I almost absolutely loved the movie. It is it is a movie that you you enter into it and you enter into its world and you both, you know, you hang out with these buddies. I mean, they it, the degree to which Pitt is made to look like the Redford of the 1970s, I mean, this face whose crags you want to just crawl into and get lost in, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just this blonde god that you just i mean i went and saw i mean you're a child of pulp fiction i'm a child of butch cassidy and the sundance kid and the sting i mean they, they those movies completely formed my sense of what you know men could be men could be with one another what they could look like how they could act what their rapport was like you know how beautiful camaraderie could be um and i think that tarantino went such a long way in recreating that recreating this world uh, uh connecting it to the 60s how hollywood was was at that moment either going to go with the 60s or against them and if you think about what happened is the western to the extent it survived the western in the 1970s became a principal revisionist document about um american imperialism and racism, right? It became the Vietnam era Western of all of those classic auteur driven movies in the 70s. But that moment hasn't arrived yet. Right now, it's this hokum on TV. I mean, it's just a thoughtful movie that gets all of these things exactly right. But I, I just want to conclude my opening bid here by saying I did love this movie. I'd love to see it again. Um, I would urge people to go see it. Uh, I think it is 90% a really honorable document and heartfelt document. But that side to Tarantino that just uses violence as an aesthetic and narrative crutch. It's almost like a trilogy. Who can you villainize and demonize on screen in this sort of cartoonish way and get away with it? The Nazis, the Klan, and the Manson murderers. And he sort of made a trilogy about each one of those. And, and without giving anything away, I just feel like the old Tarantino in each one of those movies, each of which I admired in similar ways, right? In the meat of the movie, you get lost to a world and a story and a set of relationships. And then at the end, this kind of attention deficit, you know, kitschy, shallow moron that I 
feel Tarantino was in the first third of his career reasserts itself. But at the end of the day, I want to emphasize for 90% of this movie, I was lost in the crags of Brad Pitt's face and the, <laughs> at the heart, the heart of Quentin Tarantino, which finally, finally appeared on his sleeve. I'm so surprised to hear you say that. I, I was sure. In fact, I told our producer before we started recording that part of why I saw it twice is I wanted to defend this against you because I thought you were going to say that anyone who loved this movie was an irredeemable fascist or something. No, no. Because I mean, it does, really have, it does have so many problematic elements, which we're not going to oh, probably, yes. probably no, get into question. without spoiling. Well, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you. I mean, like, well, for example, the the depiction of Sharon Tate in the movie as played by Margot Robbie as this kind of oasis of of decency and calm and and human sexuality and maternity is that misogynistic or is that not misogynistic like how did you feel i mean she is not a small part of this movie but she barely says anything um to the women on the panel i'm really curious like what what would you make of that aspect of the film i mean i i think the movie takes her very seriously takes takes the performance seriously and takes um what it is doing with the take character on screen seriously uh, in ways that we can talk about also in the spoiler special. But but to what we can discuss here, I mean, one of the things I love about this movie is the attention that it pays to actors. It takes the inner emotional life of actors, which is often treated as a punchline, right, by Hollywood. Hollywood loves to tell stories about filmmaking, but like even in Hollywood movies, the actors are kind of the butt of the joke often. And the 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 one sequence that I really loved is the sequence in the middle of the film where we alternate between watching Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate go and check out a mm. matinee of The Wrecking Crew um, and her kind of delight and fascination with seeing her name on the marquee, uh, her shy way of introducing herself to the people who run the theater and saying, hey, I'm in the movie. And they're like excited, but they also have no clue who she is. She's not actually famous yet, really. Um, and then she watches her performance. She's rooting for herself to get the stunt right. She's thinking about how hard it was to learn that stunt. She's watching the response of the people in the room to the slapstick. Um, the 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 kind of delight, anxiety, and pride in her own performance in that sequence, which then is cross-cut yeah. with uh, this sequence of Leonardo DiCaprio trying to nail this kind of two-bit role on a TV show as the heavy, in which he has a long... Um, heavily marinated monologue that involves calling somebody's daughter a hot chili pepper and you know he's sort of like a Tex-Mex baddie um, and he's having trouble like he's this old pro and he's just, he's supposed to be the star who's brought in in his waning days to be the bad guy and he is blowing lines he went on a total bender the night before and he's so pissed at himself that he can't do this thing and so um, upended by the quiet, modest professionalism of the nine year, the, the very precocious nine year old who's co starring in the scene with him. Just the, you know, I think it's probably, I don't know how long it is, 20 minutes of maybe not that long, but it's a very long pause in a movie that's fairly kinetic and has a lot of speedily driving through the Hollywood Hills where we're really just sitting with those actors and taking seriously their ambitions. And even though the performance doesn't have a lot of lines in it, which which um, Tarantino took a question about and snapped in response to during a panel at Cannes, um, I, I think the Roby performance is great. And I think the role is not underwritten. And I think there are other reasons why it's not, um, you know, full of like loquacious fonts of cinephilia mm -hmm. the way yes. many Tarantino's characters are, which we can get into in the spoiler. 
Julia, I agree that that scene at the center or the cut, you know, the cut up bits of the scene where you see Sharon Tate watching herself on screen is just it's really the heart of the movie. It's like a rainbow. It's just so beautiful and really one of the best uh, scenes involving a woman's interiority, I think, that Tarantino has done. Mm. In other ways, I think this movie disserves some of its female characters and has some moments of um, misogyny that that shout back to that old Tarantino you were talking about, Steve. Uh, but that scene is, is certainly not one of them. And it's th- the idea that her character is underwritten just because she doesn't have a lot of lines mm-hmm. seems kind of crazy because there, there are other ways to matter in a movie, as Steve says, besides verbosely talking. I, w- I agree with everything you both said. I felt like if I said it, I might be guilty of a certain kind of a patriarchal mel- uh, sentimental longing and thereby sexism, but I felt exactly that way about that part as written and her performance is amazing. The, the main question that I have for you guys about this movie, I can't ask it without spoiling too much, so I think we're just going to have to throw it pretty soon to the Slate Plus segment, but it has to do with a revelation about the past of of Brad Pitt's character and a partial flashback that you get about that revelation, which for me colored the entire rest of the movie, not necessarily for the worse, but just for the more ambiguous and ambivalent. And I think you know what I'm talking about, but I think we're just going to have to throw it all to Slate Plus. Mm, okay. I have before... a theory. I have a unified theory of the movie that encompasses Brad Pitt's backstory. And to hear it, you'll have to subscribe to Slate Plus. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not going to offer a cheap teaser here. I'm going to just make a final point, which is that I love the set pieces that you point to of Sharon Tate going to see herself in the movies juxtaposed with uh, DiCaprio's character finding something completely unexpected inside himself for no reason, easily identifiable reason, and delivering a Shakespearean performance for a shitty, you know, uh, cowpuncher TV show. But but another set piece that I really love that I don't want to pass over is um, when Pitt, Pitt has this kind of running flirtation with a, with a Manson girl who's super, super young. And his... If Tarantino has no other genius, he is able to get men and women on screen to interact with one another in like just fucking they're both like, listen, what is it that makes like a great Hollywood movie? Great. You feel as though you're watching real life at the same time you feel as though you're watching something iconic, right? That, that, That will become iconic. And so in one sense, you're watching it in the moment spontaneously like a fly on the wall. In another sense, you're watching it proleptically. Like one day I'll look back on this and I'll, you know, I'll repeat the lines and I'll know every angle of the shot or whatever. And he's just, he's just, not many filmmakers do that anymore, really. And it's like the scene with Pitt and this young girl in the car where she's m- making graphic sexual offers and he's wise and old enough and is like, I'm not going to jail for jailbait you know and it's just it's like i mean that's such a reductive way of looking at that scene but just everything that's going on between them the two of them as actors the two of them as characters and the camera is just inside an automobile it's just so fucking beautifully done anyway see this movie you may love it you may hate it but you're not going to do just one or the other and it's one of the more extraordinary movies i think we've we've talked about in a long time we have more to say it's going to be in the plus there's your cheap teaser okay moving on If any of us have uh, 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 any more breath in our lungs to spare, Dana, maybe it's you um, to talk about business. What do you got? Uh, Only the thing that we just talked about, which is that Slate Plus today will be a spoiler-filled segment about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So if you subscribe to Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus, you can hear that segment and segments like that and get ad-free podcasts every week. It's a great deal. I highly recommend Slate Plus. Once you get it, you will never want to go back. 
So again, if you want to support the Culture Gab Fest and all the other shows we do, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. The Great Hack tells the story of the covert, semi-covert cyber campaign to help swing uh, the British referendum in the American presidential election in favor of Brexit and Trump, respectively. Uh, but it's not told dryly at all, not at all. Um, to that end, it focuses on a young woman, a millennial named Brittany Kaiser. Kaiser had been part of the team running Obama's Facebook strategy. She then went on to work for Amnesty International and other such related kinds of organizations. As she says, she was a human rights activist. Then she met Alexander Nix, N-I-X. What a perfect name. The CEO of a company called Cambridge Analytica. He charmed her with one-liners and alcohol and his obvious access to power. And she was essentially bribed by the easy money to be made if you flatter and further the aims of the conservative right. And so she went from lobbying the UN to downing flutes of Prosecco in Capri, all thanks to her selling her labor to Cambridge Analytica. Nix's company specializes in, quote, weapons-grade communications tactics. It's a data mining and ad channeling outfit used to persuade the quote-unquote persuadables, uh, those Brexit voters most on the fence, and those relatively few people in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida who ultimately decided the 2016 election. Let's listen to a clip. It began with the dream of a connected world. A space where everyone could share each other's experiences and feel less alone. It wasn't long before this world became our matchmaker, instant fact checker, personal entertainer, guardian of our memories, even our therapist. I was teaching digital media and developing apps. So I knew that the data from our online activity wasn't just evaporating. And as I dug deeper, I realized these digital traces of ourselves are being mined into a trillion dollar a year industry. We are now the commodity. But we were so in love with the gift of this free connectivity that no one bothered to read the terms and conditions. Okay, well that <laughs> that actually is is a perfectly fine clip for us to use. That's the voice of David Carroll and another story being told parallel really to Kaiser's story is the story of David Carroll who sues Cambridge Analytica in order to have them turn over all of the you know data collected on him as one way of trying to expose exactly where their tentacles reach. Uh, so he's another uh, character in this documentary, Julia. It's really kind of Kaiser and Carol um, carry most of the narrative. Uh, I found this very grim, very sinister, very foreboding. I'm imagining that you maybe found it overblown and slightly oversold. Oh, I am so predictable. Your algorithm <laughs> has predicted my response to you. Now you're needling <laughs> me appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um. Steve, I found this movie kind of overblown and oversold, (laughs) or rather, (laughs) I felt that this movie, um, I really want to understand how to think more about the use of Facebook as a distribution platform for political messaging and about how to think about the malfeasance of Cambridge Analytica and its relationship to Russia. Russia is very much not in the movie. There is like two or three scant references to it, but this movie um, sets a tight perimeter of its purview just at big tech, big data, and political persuasion. Um, 
And I felt that this movie was treating me like one of the dummies who got a fake news viral tweet that convinced them that Hillary was crooked a little bit. Like, it just never answered the fundamental question I have, which is, why is using Facebook to reach people and give them politically persuasive messages fundamentally different than all of the different tools that have been used to persuade voters to change their votes in the past, like political persuasion and propaganda, micro-targeting. Carl Rove did it in 04. The Obama team was lauded for this exact thing, using technology mm. to identify micro-political micro profiles and to target them with persuasive messages and the like incredible sophistication of his operation in 08. And, you know, ability to out-technologize Mitt Romney in 2012 was, like, wildly lauded. And I I don't – I genuinely don't think it is the same. I think there is something about the scale, the reach, the, the you know, pattern we're beginning to observe with Facebook that suggests that, um, you know, I think at one point the film uses the phrase weapons grade to describe Facebook as a persuasion and information platform. They also use the phrase psyops, which is very sinister. Um, but uh, this movie does not make a rigorous case about how all these things are related, why this is distinct, how we should be thinking about it. And it just sort of puts a lot of like gobbledygook, like streaming pixels ominously on screen, like there's like gray dots zooming at you. Facebook is bad. And it's like, well, then how is that that different from like a crooked Hillary meme page? Like, do you think I'm a chump? Like be smarter and make me smarter. And this film did not do that. It does have, it does allow us to spend a lot of time with Brittany Kaiser, who's this very interesting whistleblower character at the heart of Cambridge Analytica, very conflicted I'm still not sure how I feel about her. And I didn't mind passing some time in her company and learning a bit more about what transpired. But no, this documentary is not what I wished it was. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Brittany Kaiser, I mean, this is a, a documentary about characters, right? It's it's about Brittany Kaiser, the whistleblower at Cambridge Analytica, Alexander Nix, who refused to participate, but we still see a lot of footage of him testifying, etc. He was the head of Cambridge Analytica. This guy, David Carroll, the American professor who's suing them to try to get his data back and essentially to expose their wrongdoing. And they're all very interesting characters, but it's it's far too vast of a scandal or whatever you want to call it, operation to be reduced to just the story of those few people. It's sort of this documentary in some ways reminded me of the worst of the two fire Festival documentaries, and I can't remember which was which now, but the one that sort of made it just seem like, oh, here's two or three bad actors, you know, who did bad things, and therefore... You know, this this scandal occurred. Um, and, and in fact, as Julia says, there's a, there's a much larger worldwide uh, kind of sinister operation involving Russia, WikiLeaks, et cetera, that's barely hinted at, which granted maybe did not figure that largely in the particular story that's being told here. But which is really the one that matters to to us for the 2016 election and the 2020 election. Um, there is a lot about Brexit here. And I have to say that I understood some things about Brexit that I had not understood before because of this documentary. Also, some very short but really telling scenes about elections in other countries, for example, in Trinidad, Tobago, where there was this apparently voter suppression campaign through Facebook or WhatsApp, which is a which is owned by Facebook anyway, which I think is worth pointing to as something different, Julia, than than what the Obama campaign did in that the point was to increase voter apathy. The point was actually to keep young people from going to the polls. And there was sort of a cleverly designed campaign to make it look as if it was this noble 
protest of the government to just not vote in the election. And then, of course, as a result, the right wing party that Cambridge Analytica was supporting won the election. I do think that there are things being pointed to that show a sinister new direction in this kind of data manipulation that wasn't already present in earlier campaigns. But I agree that you have to you have to know about stuff from outside of the documentary and bring that in to really start to question yes, yes what this document is. Yes and no. Yeah, the context I mean, and analysis is like flying pixels. And I mean, yes, it, what cam- what candidates do on behalf of their own campaigns in their own country with technology is obviously very different than what countries do when they meddle in the elections of other countries. And it's not clear who hired Cambridge Analytica in that Trinidad case. And there actually is a title card at the end noting that the candidate who's supposed to have... Um, benefit from it denies having been engaged with them, which lots of people deny having been engaged with them who have not. So who knows what to make of that. But, you know, it's not like that's the first time that uh, anybody, not to mention our own government, has meddled in the elections of a foreign country. Like, again, these are not good things. But just like I, what I am hungry for is a piece of nonfiction that helps me think intelligently about how Facebook through scale, through dexterity, through ease of use changes and makes much more efficacious these technologies that these technologies, customs, you know, types of bad acts on the part of different governments, like how how does it transform them? And and I just... Steve, defend it. You got too too distracted by the fancy, shiny baubles of the graphics of the documentary because a lot of what you claimed... find missing and it actually was there. So listen, on the critical end, I think there are two possible elisions here that you need to account for. Why didn't these methods continue to work for Ted Cruz, right? If they're so incredibly mesmerizing and efficacious, Cambridge Analytica worked for Cruz in the primaries. Cruz does get an early important victory in Iowa, then wheezes out to Trump, who's not using these methods, presumably at that point. So Trump connected with the Republican primary voter and overrode the cunning machinations of Cambridge Analytica before using Cambridge Analytica to ride to victory over Clinton. So there's still an X factor here that's very specific both to the voter and the candidate that has nothing to do with these, you know, uh, uh, you know, subliminal or, 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 or sinister or covert digital, you know, data mining operations. Uh, and then the second el- possible illusion is, well, the o- Obama campaign pioneered some of these techniques, at least. Is it only sinister when Republicans do it? Um, so I think the first question goes very unanswered. I think the second question is at least hinted at, which is that um, is that in the case of Trump and Cambridge Analytica, it's not just that they used Facebook. It's that they leveraged Facebook to build out person- personality profiles of every other voter, whether or not that person was on Facebook, because they they Kevin Bacon it. You know, it's if you click on something of mine and I click on something of yours and all of a sudden along this chain of relatively tenuous associations, they're able to get my data, even if I'm not a Facebook using Facebook, even if I'm Wait, not hang a on, user one sec, of- Steve. One sec, Steve. Is that right? I thought it was just that they were able to get it even if you didn't take the quiz, but you have to be part of someone's network on Facebook. Well, the other whistleblower in this case, in the Cambridge Analytica case, is Christopher Wiley, who says they needed only 200,000 Facebook users to build out a personality profile of every person in the United States. Uh, The documentary makes it clear, as far as I'm concerned, that there's massive leveraging of people who may have somewhat signed up for specific sites and therefore a certain, you know, kind of relationship involving one's own data to friends and people that you text. Secondly, people have no sense of the extent to which their 
um, you know, it's not just that they're figuring out that you clicked on a, you know, Soul Cycle ad, and therefore the Soul Cycle ad follows you around the internet. I mean, they're scraping your personal messages. Uh, they're they're going into your entire browsing history. I mean, this the extent to which this is intrusive in ways that people don't under still don't understand. Um, I don't think should be soft pedaled. A person is kind of querying Kaiser on how she thinks her own moral compass was compromised in dealing with Cambridge Analytica, and he puts the question actually, I think, quite articulately and pointedly. The idea of a company conducting large-scale analysis of a population then identifying the triggers that people have in terms of what is going to move them from one state to another state, that feels very challenging to the individual's sense of autonomy and freedom and to the idea of democracy. I don't care whether, I mean, I care at some level whether Obama, what the difference is between what Obama did and what Trump did and Brexit did. That's fine in terms of like partisan culpability, by all means, let's, by all means, let's have some public reckoning with that. But the large question of how you can micro target individuals based on their use of the internet so that they believe that they're interacting with a common and public sphere, but in fact are getting super niche contact, content designed only to persuade them to do thing X. That misperception has created an enormous amount of very dangerous political mischief. And the question of whether Brexit and, and the election of Donald Trump actually reflect the will of the people is a huge question confronting democracy going forward. And I do think we're going to have to come up with some normative idea of what an autonomous and free individual is that this kind of manipulation uh, compromises them and their essence. And those are questions that at least are being raised in the context of this documentary, and they cannot be poo-pooed and made to go away by saying Obama did it too. No, they can't. But this, this, those, those questions existed prior to this documentary, and this documentary very frustratingly like does not advance the ball. And I really do think, Steve, you've come away from it, which I fault the documentary with. Like, I don't think that's right that the Cambridge Analytica stuff developed a map of everybody, including people who aren't on Facebook. I don't even understand how that would be technologically possible. As far as I understand it, the issue was that this quiz exploited and or violated Facebook's terms of service, depending on how much you believe Facebook, and gathered data on everybody in the Facebook social map of the people who took the quiz, which ended up being a proxy for. But I read that as hyperbole on the part of that whistleblower. And if it, in fact, was not hyperbole, it would have been great for this documentary to tell us that. And if, in fact, it was hyperbole, it would have been great for this documentary to, like, gently nudge us towards an understanding of what it actually was. But there's just, a, like, a gauziness and a fear-mongering to it that just made me want to toss it out and go back and read the Jane Mayer stuff from last year that is is much better. But this is turning on an actual factual question, which we should now, as his, as his bar- parting donation to our efforts, Alex Barrish should determine the winner in this fight between mommy and daddy. <laughs> Julia is the winner. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, shit. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the person's entire friend network that they get access to if you take the quiz. But uh, wait, not, wait. To, not to people who aren't on, on Facebook. Oh, no. okay. So your, your entire friend network on Facebook is what they would get access to if you took I the quiz. I still don't think I'm wrong, though. I think that they are able to... That's still to a lot of people. Come on. <laughs> but. Come on. I, 
I mean, first of all, I've never heard you laugh like that in 13 <laughs> years of doing this show, which means you're one fucking sick puppy if the thing that makes you happy is this humiliating me. And second of all, oh. I do feel very humiliated. I've got to find out that I'm not wrong. I'm Hold sorry. On. And I re- I'm sorry. I did not mean this. I was laughing at the just the... The succinctness of Alex's rejoinder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's of, what you're the succinctness. Right. Oh, the amusing. I really did not intend it. I didn't. I didn't mean to be cruel. It was not my goal. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I still don't think I'm wrong. I'm going to fact check it, and we'll come back. And if I will eat the appropriate uh, portion of crow, if I'm totally wrong. The upshot is Julia is still right, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it is it's uh, slightly messy in that. They had data on people who were not on Facebook, but they did not get that data from the personality quiz. They got it from, you know, voter records and so on. So Wiley is sort of conflating those two data sets in his statement, which is irresponsible in my opinion. But right. uh, but I still would like to know. So clearly they did one nefarious thing, which is they t- got 200,000 or whatever it was people to take the quiz and then they got access to the friend network. Yeah, the friend networks on are, the, are on Facebook. It's Right, yeah. but they're on Facebook clearly, but they went from, you know, a couple hundred thousand people giving a form of consent to something like 80, 80 to 90 million people who gave nothing like consent yes. having having their Facebook information. Okay, so the question is, did the Obama admi- uh, uh, campaign do that? And I strongly suspect no. that the answer is no. no. But there's a second question, which is... That's not what the is, question was. Well, okay, but the second question is, to what extent is Cambridge Analytica using data from myriad sources, online sources, to create personality profiles of people, uh, whether or not they use that specific social media platform? And that's the question I'd like an answer to. And listen, yes, it's fun to get into it back and forth and like win or lose an argument. But the real question is how many people without anything resembling consent have had a personality profile formed of them uh, and are then getting micro-targeted regardless of what platform it happens to be on? And, And what do we make of that relative to our notion of individual autonomy and democracy? Right. I agree. All of that is super important to understand. My, I just think this documentary is sloppy and slipshod about how it helps us to understand that, which seems to me to be borne out by the fact that it took us like multiple outside the documentary fact checks to understand the actual underlying data set. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, fair enough. Why don't we leave it there and we will refight this battle over and over and over again into eternity? All right, going into our final segment, I want to make absolutely plain that where I live, Lyme disease, a tick-borne bacterial illness, is an absolute scourge. In fact, my older daughter has just finished a um, uh, a two-week round of antibiotics in order to rid herself of it. It is real. It is pervasive. But the question is, is it chronic? And if it is a chronic disease, how common is it? And is it being overdiagnosed as a chronic disease? This is the subject of a, a piece by Molly Fisher in The Cut called What Happens When Lyme Disease Becomes an Identity? There are a lot of layered questions here about Lyme disease, which is that as a chronic disease, it mimics a lot of the symptoms of general malaise, depression, what could be purely psychosomatic. Um, Julia, as I say, Lyme disease is a very real fact of my life in the Hudson Valley. Almost everyone I know has gotten it and been treated for it. But chronic Lyme is a very different story. This is a complex piece. Do you want to give us some summary of its ins and outs? 
Yeah, I mean, I I really loved this piece. I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of it, but I thought it did a really good job of being very cold-headed and examining what the scientific community makes of chronic Lyme, how it assesses it, what some of the economics are of the people who profess to treat it, while also being very sympathetic to the set of circumstances that causes people to think they have it and lean into it as a um, explanation for various ailments that have not been taken seriously treated or ameliorated by medicine. And it, it, I think on the science internet, the kind of warring factions, the, the, the difference between the like bully pulpit, you know, vaccines work. And if you don't think so, you're a jerk. And if you believe in chronic line, you're a chump. And, you know, the sort of big science, the science bully internet is how I think of it, um, versus the kind of conspiratorial skeptic internet where um, quite reasonable skepticism about our healthcare system and corporations and their motives kind of festers and ferments into these very dangerous um in the case of vaccines, uh, set of life choices that put people at risk. Um, I just really admired the way that this piece, uh, as a as a bit of reporting and writing, navigated those waters. Um, and I and as I was reading it, I was very excited to discuss it with you, Steve, because it made me realize like you live in Lyme country. Like Lyme is just a thing. It happens to your family a bunch. Happens to your neighbors a bunch. Um, and I'm curious what people up where you are think about chronic Lyme? Like, are they more or less likely to believe in chronic Lyme as a explanation for the set of autoimmune symptoms well, that let, people have and, and think about? I think, let me, without speaking for the entirety of my community, here's what my experience has been, which <laughs> is that, it, it, well, it's just that, I didn't mean that glibly, but I mean, it's just that the, that the, commonness of the disease in its ordinary form, its susceptibility to treatment, um, the fact that everyone you know has had it, you get treated and it disappears. I feel like I do not encounter a lot of people who claim to have chronic Lyme, and I do not hear about it being a large part of the community up here. What I will say is that a couple of political events, there are up here involving, you know, state representative running for office, they will almost always get a question about chronic Lyme and whether they believe in it and whether or not. And and so it's, it's it, to the extent a, a small minority of afflicted people up here do believe they have it, they really sincerely believe they have it. And, and their belief fits into this paradigm of a blinkered, self-interested medical establishment that refuses to believe them um and that is inherently sexist like i think sexism is a huge part of this story in a weird way coming at it from the other angle that that essentially it's a, a disease predominantly of middle-aged women with symptoms that can mimic simply becoming middle-aged right or being depressed and they're being told this is all in your head and that fits into conveniently dana with a scenario in which something real and 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 physiologically based is happening to a woman who's not believed simply because of her gender. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, it's, it's, it, this is hard to approach because I have so much sympathy, empathy for the women, as you say, people, mainly women, who are trying to get their symptoms taken seriously in the in the story that Molly Fisher tells and and are not getting 
them taken seriously. And I, myself, unrelated to Lyme, have a chronic neuropathic pain syndrome that took years to be diagnosed and that I'm still intermittently being treated for. And so I know that experience of going to doctor after doctor and having them say, I remember a doctor dismissing me saying, play tennis and have a martini. That was his, that was his uh, prescription for me <laughs> oh to get better. Uh, this is like, was this 1952? Was it, exactly. Like, was go, Don go, Draper in the waiting room? Exactly. What the fuck? Become a character in a John Cheever novel and you'll no longer be in pain. <laughs> <laughs> so while having incredible sympathy for these, you know, auto, essentially autoimmune patients, people who have a complex set of different symptoms that they don't know what umbrella to put under and are relieved to find this umbrella, right? Um, but Fisher also does a really good job at really doing almost an, an expose of, of medical fraud. I mean, there's a couple of doctors yeah. that she talks to who refer to themselves by this this acronym of LLMDs, Lyme literate MDs, so people who are sympathetic to treating Lyme disease. And that is no category of anything. That doesn't involve getting any kind of certification or doing any further study. You know, it's, it's just simply a, a category that's created in order for them to attract patients and build their businesses and charge an incredible amount of money for treatments that may or may not work, that don't seem to have been investigated by the medical establishment in any way and aren't the result of large-scale research. And, I mean, there's no question in my mind whether or not there is such a thing as chronic Lyme disease that there are objectively doctors out there who are exploiting the idea that there's such a thing as chronic Lyme disease. And so that in itself is something really worthy of exposing. Yeah, I mean, one one scene that I really love just for its quiet persuasiveness is this moment where she's interviewing one of these Lyme literate doctors and pressing him on the point of whether anyone who ever shows up and thinks they may have chronic Lyme is told that they don't, like whether it is possible to get a negative diagnosis from someone who is Lyme literate or whether what Lyme literate means is if you tell me you think you have Lyme, I will reflect that back to you. And my reflection of that back to you will involve further appointments and further fees and further payments and further lab tests from special labs. And, you know, just the just that was just a devastating exchange, I thought. Right. And the fact that it's an entire alternative system of diagnosis, right? It's not just that the doctor is a quote unquote specialist. It's the lab, you know, that part of his, you know, credential rests on oh there's the i mean there are these standard labs you could send it to but they don't know and it's it's yet another kind of alter alternative reality universe in which you're being told that what you are seeing is reality but what actually is happening is you are being micro marketed to uh, and manipulated it's incredibly sad because what what such a person most needs to hear is that this thing is not in their head, but is actually a feature of the objective world that has invaded them and taken them over. And um, and what these medical specialists appear to specialize in is the ability to m mirror back exactly that uh, worldview to the person, essentially affirm the person in their suspicion that they've been bacterial, bacterially invaded. And that is why they feel essentially a, a deep, you know, deep and chronic malaise. And that's incredibly sad, but I can't get beyond, I can't, get, I can't, Julia, help me out here. I can't quite push myself, even given the evidence of the piece 
to fully believe that this is psychosomatic. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think the piece tries to go that far. And I think it is a sympathetic to the idea that this cluster of symptoms is understudied, under understood, and that this set of patients is not being well served by real medicine, which is why they are easy targets for this branch of medicine in which being told you're well is apparently impossible. Um, or being told, being helped to understand the whys and ways in which you are sick. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. It's a sad story. I mean, I, I just, it just feels like one of those facets of human knowledge where the, um, the amount we will understand about how our bodies work in 50 or 100 years, we're going to look back on this and it's going to just seem like leeches and humors. Yeah, Steve, I think it's one of the strengths of this piece that it doesn't create a binary in which either chronic Lyme exists in exactly the way that, you know, the doctors who call themselves Lyme literate doctors claim that it exists, or it's a bunch of psychosomatic symptoms that are all in somebody's head, right? I mean, there's obviously a third possibility out there, which is that this mysterious set of symptoms could be the result of some other sort of disease or infection or a group of other diseases or infections or conditions. And in that sense, this group of Lyme literate so-called doctors is also doing a huge disservice to the medical community at large and to the, their patients at large, which is that they're keeping people in this mindset, fixed mindset, that they have chronic Lyme and it's only understood by this one small part of the medical community and everyone else is defrauding them or ignoring them. And it's keeping what might actually be at the root of their symptoms from being researched and investigated. Uh, yep, I agree, Dan. And I want to reiterate this really, really good piece of journalism in the cut, the July 24th, 2019 uh, edition of it. And we'll have a link to the piece online by Molly Fisher, What Happens When Lyme Disease Becomes an Identity. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steven, I'm going to endorse maybe the best documentary I've seen this year. I'm almost sure this is going to end up on my 10 best, even though we're only halfway through the year. It's called Honeyland, and it's a documentary about a Macedonian beekeeper, a woman who lives in a apparent a, a former village that is now inhabited only by herself and her aged mother and who makes a living off of climbing into the mountains, getting this wild honey and taking it into the town of Skopje, the nearest city in Macedonia, to sell it. And uh, without giving too much away, it's sort of a story about how that way of life, which is barely sustainable to begin with, gets less and less sustainable because of environmental issues and also due to a family that moves into her community and start to sort of horn their way into her honey gathering business. Anyway, I don't want to give anything more away than that. It's this gorgeously shot, contemplative, really, really smart and sad and beautiful documentary. Uh, it won Best Documentary at Sundance, I believe, and has just started opening across the country. I think right now it's only in New York, L.A. and possibly Detroit. But if you look at their website, it looks like it either has played or is going to play in other cities, including Minneapolis, Tucson. So just keep an eye out. Eventually, I'm sure that this will come to streaming and everyone will be able to see it. But if you hear anything about a movie called Honeyland, just go and see it. It's truly amazing. Oh, that sounds very cool. Julia, what do you have? Uh, my endorsement this week is the Gooseneck Barnacle. So I was on a beach a couple weekends ago. It was actually an East Coast beach. And there was a gigantic tree trunk of driftwood that had washed up on the shore. And we kind of noticed from afar that some gulls were hanging around it. And then as we got close to it, we saw on the end of the trunk, these insane creatures. They were like gigantic horrifying protuberant like prongs of flesh on the end of which seemed to be three or four different 
kind of muscle-shaped shell-like enclosures that opened and shut if you put like a finger near them and then inside the shell like appendages were like weird little feathery frills that like twisted and fluttered in response to some perceived stimulus um and they were fucking horrifying and just so confusing and like didn't look just in the way that only creatures from deep under the sea can look they looked like nothing i had ever imagined could possibly exist altogether before um we sent we took pictures of them we took videos of them we sent them to like marine biologist friends that we knew who were like i don't know what that is that's freaking horrifying that seems to be the the aliens of the deep and then eventually somebody was like those are gooseneck barnacles and we looked them up and sure enough a thing that exists is a gooseneck barnacle apparently uh as is perhaps not surprising they are delicacies in some places um anyway may May life wash up upon your shore some horrifying ocean creature that mesmerizes you and sends you on an afternoon of marine biological research because it was so fun. It was a, We were with a big group of grownups and kids, and we were all just marveling at the mysteries of nature. So my endorsement is nature slash gooseneck barnacles. <laughs> <laughs> That's not culture. Nature is not culture. Hence, the barnacles cannot be endorsed on the culture gap fest. Oh, oh come my. on. <laughs> Posh. <laughs> uh, all right. I am going to endorse a band that I only just discovered this weekend, courtesy of a friend of mine who is visiting. I can't believe I've never heard them or heard of them. They're called His Name is Alive. And they've been around since the early 90s making these kind of off the beaten track, indie, shoegazy, dreamy, spectral, um, indie rock records that are just wonderful. And it's basically this multi-instrumentalist kind of, I picture him as a loner dude out in Michigan. um, And he teamed with a woman vocalist, a singer, Karen Oliver, who's a beautiful singer. And they just make these unbelievable records. Like I've listened to two or three of them now uh, they've been around and they stuck around forever. And the out al- like album after album are just wonderful records. Stars on ESP, Mouth by Mouth, um, Home is in Your Head. Th- these are these are terrific records. Last night I cannot believe I did not know this band and their music. I really love them. They're called His Name Is Alive. And then I want to endorse, it's true, avocado truffles. Have you ever, have you ever had this? It's so No, I've never even heard of that. It's so fucking uncanny. It's basically a chocolate truffle whose fat is avocado. And you would think that no way is the avocado flavor not going to come through and clash with the chocolate flavor and give it away and be this disgusting vegan-y substitute. And it's not. You would never in a million years know that you're not eating a traditionally fat-filled, animal fat-filled chocolate truffle. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever put in my mouth. And because you're using dark chocolate, it doesn't have a lot of sugar. So it's basically good fat, the good fat, right? The avocado fat. And and if you, like me, like really dark chocolate, it's almost no sugar. And it's the most unbelievably decadently satisfying dessert you've ever had. So 
I'm endorsing it and the avocado truffle recipe that my dear friend Lauren must have used the other night. And I'm now going to email her and get the link to it. I mean, I found one online. There are a bunch and I'm sure hers is no different from these, but I'll find the one that she used because I, in a million years, you could taste test it side by side and you wouldn't know the difference. And it's so good. And they're so easy to make fucking unbelievable. Thank me now. Thank me later. Uh, and I don't care whether Facebook scraped non Facebook data or not. I still win this episode because of this. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing California wrong because somehow I had to go to Steve's neck of the woods to have a CBD shrub this summer and then also <laughs> shrub like the, like, you know, vinegar drink. And then now I'm only learning about avocado truffles from, from upstate New York. Like what, what, portion of my transition into being a Californian have I screwed up to to be dependent on the East Coast for these things. I don't know, but I will seek them out. Uh, they are amazing. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Julia. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thanks, Dana. Same to you, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us culturefest at slate.com. And we do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. You are in that ambiguous you know, valley between quote unquote reality, like I'm watching the real thing happen. But of course, you're not you're watching a movie too, at that moment. And he brings those two together, right? He's had movies within movies, as we've said, right throughout the whole thing. But the movie, like you watch naively, which is why movies are so fucking amazing. And this one's very good at getting you to watch it both knowingly and naively. Like they're just moments when you're lost in the world of the film, but he's alienating you and saying, no, you're still watching a fucking movie and you're an idiot if you think this is the way violence works in the real world. 